This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 166, Lenin's Gift to Stalin. When we last left Stalin, he had been exiled to the far north at Solichedosk, where he was to spend his days with Russia's most hardened criminals. But after recovering from typhus, the young man could take it no more. His life and all his dreams were waiting for him. So, after nine months in this hellhole, he planned out his escape. A boat would be stolen, and the waterways would be used to return to civilization. As the area was extremely remote, the guards were somewhat lax, letting the environment do most of their work. And Koba was determined, driven, and thanks to Tatiana Sukova, a fellow inmate, now healthy. During his time at Soleil Chedosk, the other prisoners would later recall Stalin's sensitivity, his quickness, almost eagerness, to feel that he had been slighted. This trait of his would harm many tens of thousands in the years to come. Of course, no one called him what he was, because the word was not yet in use. He was a sociopath, in its truest sense. Stalin did not feel empathy for others due to his lack of a conscience. Any emotions of care or regard was reserved for himself. But life is rarely, if ever, intimidated by a man's internal anger or outward rage. Just to remind him that all men's lives are finite, soon after his successful escape, Koba got word that his father, Beso, had died. This was August of 1909. His death had come in the form of cirrhosis of the liver, and only one fellow cobbler 
had shown up for the burial. Stalin's father was lowered into an unmarked grave, which forced Soso to ask himself, what had he done with his life so far? He was 30 years old. He had no possessions, no home, no career. He had written about someone else's ideas, Marxism, and what he knew, violence, scheming, treachery, and how to escape from prison, could certainly not help him in a normal life. Not that his life had been normal since leaving the seminary. On a more positive note, Stalin was always seeking to improve himself through reading and seeking to improve his lot in life, though that part had not gone so well, by working for the cause. And during his search for improvement, Soso tried on different identities through various nicknames. Oddball, Osip, Oska, Koba, yet he found none that matched what he thought of himself or his potential. Soso had gotten better, after many attempts, at encouraging loyalty to himself, yet those that currently made up his entourage were now scattered. In this regard, the young man would have to start all over again. Now free, but with few options, as the Okranka was doing a commendable job at combating the communists, Stalin made for the capital, St. Petersburg. There he stayed in the house of Sergei Aluvniev, as he had before. Aluvniev's daughter, Nadia, would later marry Stalin, becoming his second wife. Still, with no prospects and the Okranka on his tail, Soso went back to Baku. Yet the authorities there stayed right with him, trailing him all the time, hoping to discover some of his contacts. When Stalin led them to no one knew, the authorities arrested him again in March of 1910. Not unconnected, the Social Democratic Party of whatever faction mirrored Stalin's downcast fortune. The Russian authorities had turned or blackmailed so many party members, it was hard for anyone to trust anyone else. Those that continued to give the Tsar trouble were exiled or disappeared. To give an example, in 1907, the Social Democratic Party had 150,000 followers. But three years later, that number was down to just 10,000. It seemed that Russia was indeed not the place for Marxism to bloom just yet. Perhaps the next generation would do better. And yet, Russia remained destabilized politically. Gone were the days of Russia being dominated by the Eastern Orthodox, though they were still 70% of the country. Their ever harder measures against the Ukrainians or Belarusians, with their severe suppression of local language and customs, resulted in tension still hanging in the air, waiting for someone to figure out how to use it. In the end, it was those prosecuting that kept the cultural aspect of Russia in upheaval, not the ones feeling the effects. And the tension would only grow. Stolypin was no Bismarck, though he tried his ways. In the end, Stolypin's end, it came down to Stolypin's relationship with Nicholas II, or rather, his lack of a relationship. The Tsar tired of hearing about his accomplished prime minister, and not himself. So he rid himself of his main official. 
Nicholas' solution to this gaping hole in his government was to be his own man, yet he could not. An autocrat cannot be prime minister. He is, by definition, above such office. So, instead, the crown would appoint weaker, less qualified men, and thus run the country through them. That was the plan, anyway. To further weaken those just under the czar, innuendo and gossip replaced policy. Thus, within a short time, no one could be sure where a piece of legislation had originated from, and how important it was. And this was how the czar wanted things. However, it did lead to his own government falling down on the job, as regards to moving the country forward. The question is, did Nicholas really want this? As St. Petersburg sabotaged its own attempts to rise, Stalin was locked away. The only upside to this, and it was a costly one, was that he was able to meet many of those that mattered within the Bolshevik party. Lenin, Lev Kamenev, brother-in-law of Trotsky, Georgi Zinoviev, and others besides. Before 1910 was up, Jugashvili was back in the far Solev Chekdosk, and again he befriended a lady that would end up taking care of him, and <clears throat> more besides. By late 1911, Matryona Kuzakova had a child, a boy that was most likely Stalin's. Not that Sosa was around to deny or acknowledge the child. By then, he had been given permission, either through his good behavior or the Okronka desire to see who he made contact with, to move to Vologda, north of Moscow. There, he spent his time pursuing ladies of various ages, one was even a teenager, who would also agree to help take care of him. The rest of his time was spent improving himself as Vologda had a library. Stalin visited numerous times, read books, and started collecting postcards of classical Russian paintings. Yet, with these few luxuries, Stalin's life was still bereft of true peace, purpose, or happiness, as the Okranka intended it to be. He could learn, but could not use what he had learned. Clearly, it was time for another escape. Using the papers of a recently freed exile, Stalin left Vologda and made for St. Petersburg. Now, outwitting the country officials was one thing. However, once back in the capital, he was quickly discovered by the more sophisticated, urbane Okranka agents there. Having only been back in town that September of 1911 for a few days, Sosa was arrested again. Yet, it went much worse for the Bolsheviks' enemy, the once powerful Stolypin. He was murdered by a 24-year-old terrorist, Mordecai Dmitri Bovgrove, who was under the pay of the Okranka. And with his death went any legislation to modernize the country. Clearly, this was what someone of power wanted. Stalin was sent back to Vologda, in December of 1911, yet his fortune, or fate, was about to improve. In January of 1912, the Bolsheviks assembled for a party conference in Prague. Note, not a congress. As such, Lenin's faction held 18 of the 20 delegate seats, 
The two Mensheviks would normally have been supported by the non-Bolshevik faction, yet they refused to attend a lowly conference. Lenin quickly got to work. Given itself the power of a Congress, the Assembled created a new and all-Bolshevik Central Committee. This committee now held, officially, at least on paper, power over the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. One of Lenin's first acts was to name the exiled Stalin as a Central Committee member. The master, it seemed, desired to have his forceful protege beside him once again. But there was more for Stalin to look forward to. At Prague, Lenin also created a Central Committee Russia Bureau for those currently in Russia, and Soso was put on that as well. In truth, Stalin had been calling for this for some time, and now it was a reality, and he was a member. With one or several strokes of the pen, the exiled, hopeless, and despondent Jugashvili was now among the top twelve Bolshevik leaders. And yet, this move of Lenin's perplexes many historians. There had been little contact between the two since their first meeting in December of 1905, though it seems that Lenin saw in the younger man the type of person needed to take these congresses and conferences to another level. Soon after, when a Menshevik tried to dissuade Lenin from bringing Soso in by describing the type of man he was, Lenin reacted by saying, This is exactly the kind of person I need. In essence, the soft-spoken but devious elder was recognizing Soso's lack of respect for the law, morals, customs, and tradition. For both men, the cause was all. Later that year, Lenin would write, in reaction to Mussolini's advancing the idea of ridding Italy of its moderates, a split is a difficult affair, but sometimes it is necessary, and in such circumstances, every weakness, every sentimentality, is a crime. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When thinking of Lenin, it must be remembered he was a user. There was no love between himself and Stalin. The latter had been arrested several times and had survived, which meant that Soso was a thinker, but he was also a doer. And key, he was a Bolshevik, 
among the mostly Menshevik caucuses. There were others to be sure, in fact, eleven others. But over time, Stalin would rise even among these men, while proving himself invaluable. It will come as no surprise that soon the other factions of the Socialist Party, the Bundists, Latvians, and Mensheviks, howled their protests over Lenin's convenient conference. In reaction, they met and tried to work out something for themselves. But, and Lenin probably predicted this, could not. Their differences had not changed. After this failed gesture of a protest fizzled out, Lenin, Stalin, and the other Bolsheviks did what most others have done after seizing power. They called for unity. And Fortune was about to turn her shining face to those against the establishment. The rebellious Marxists may have been at a low point due to Stolypin's policies, but those very political maneuvers did not leave an established policy so the country and government were only striving to get through each day. Hence, there was still some wiggle room for those who sought change through revolution. In late February of 1912, deep into Siberia, along the Lena River, the gold miners there had had enough. They were tired of the 16-hour workdays, the pathetic pay that most times was taken back by fines, a standard practice, way too many deaths among their own, and paltry food that resulted in sickness. The miners walked off the job. The authorities of the area did not believe the workers could hold out for long, what, not having any money to buy food, so held firm in refusing to talk with the disgruntled. However, after five weeks went by, the local authorities brought in government troops. They quickly arrested the leaders of the strike. Yet those were the very men who wanted the work stoppage to end. It was the frustrated workers themselves that continued to stay off the job. As the strike leaders were in jail, someone else advised the time-old tradition of a march to have the men released. However, the 90 or so soldiers that responded to this threat shot into the crowd of some 2,500 by someone's orders. At least 150 were dead and another 100 wounded. It would take very little time for word to get out that many of those who had been shot were done so in the back as they tried to flee. Word spread and anger rose. The Lennon-Gofield massacre, as it became known, dominated the news throughout Europe. But only in Russia did it beat out the sinking of the Titanic for the front page. Other Russians, some 300,000 in all, in their anger walked off their jobs and marched in rallies to protest such behavior. That May Day of 1912 was one of the largest in living memory. But because all this happened so quickly and originated so far away, the socialists were not at the fore. Yet Stalin reacted quickly enough, writing in the newly established paper Pravda, the truth in Russian, which was also created at the Prague conference. The Lena shots broke the ice of silence, and the river of popular resentment is flowing again. It has started. And the Okranka agreed. 
They were soon working overtime in attempting to learn and then control many of the rebellious groups that rose soon after. As for the Okranka's ultimate boss, the Tsar, his troubles were only increasing as well. His most fervent supporters, who praised him publicly and called for a return to the old ways, secretly wanted Nicholas removed. He was not the man for the job. The country was sliding backward and the people were getting out of hand. Yet if the leader was killed, his son, the Tsarevich Alexei Nikolaevich, who was only nine, could not take power. Russian law required the Tsar be at least 16 years old, which left Nicholas's younger brother, Grand Duke Mikhail Alexandrovich, to be the leader. Unfortunately for all concerned, he was even less bright and considered more obstinate than Nicholas. That was not the way to go. Perhaps those just behind the Tsar could wait until Alexei himself had a son. Yet they knew he would not live long, nor live a robust life. The Tsarevich was born a hemophiliac, which made it hard for his body to stop bleeding if he were ever hurt. Such a one could not be counted upon. And as for having a child of his own, that was a long way away. Could Russia survive that long? Many were beginning to think not. The answer seemed to be to take Alexei's condition, make it public, and use it as a justifiable excuse to gradually bring in a real constitutional monarchy. But the Tsar and Tsarina would not let that happen. The current Romanov leaders felt the ghosts of their predecessors watching over them. Not that it mattered. The Romanovs' days were numbered. Stolypin's time in power had primarily focused on dealing with Russia's internal enemies. Any progress he had made towards building a solid political base from which the real work could begin, not to mention meeting the challenges posed by the more advanced neighbors, was not only halted in its tracks, but quickly done away with. As a result, Russia, i.e. the Tsar, would have to deal with the problems himself the old-fashioned way through his political police. In other words, the only items in the Tsar's toolbox were sticks, without any thoughts of carrots. But again, one can't help but feel that's how Nicholas wanted it. Which meant that if there were to be any reform, official or not, it would have to come from the leftists, the Marxists. The same was true for the people's hope of any improvement in their lot. But Russia would have a powerful dictator one day, one who wielded far more power than any czar. Yet no one, not even the agitator Koba, could imagine who that person would be. But Koba's days of imprisonment were not over. Soon after releasing a few editions of Pravda in late April of 1912, he was back in St. Petersburg where the well-informed Okranka snared him again. Within a few months, he was sent to the far northern Siberian town of Kopashivo. But by now, the former seminarian student was a learned escape artist. In September, he set off again, before being trapped by winter. 
making his way to Habsburg, Krakow, he soon met up with Lenin. And Koba did not show up empty-handed. Ever the striving intellectual, he showed his leader his latest paper, entitled Marxism and the National Question, destined to be published in the periodical Enlightenment. Borrowing from the German writer Karl Kautsky, Soso attempted to offer up a solution to Russia's problem with its various peoples, something that had, up to this date, eluded the Tsar's ministers. Lenin's protege wrote that a nation, any nation, is formed and held together by its language, territory, economic links, and common national character. Not only was he offering up a path for Russia to find its strength, unity, and survival, but it also flew in the face of what the Mensheviks believed was the correct path. He was always fighting them. Moreover, the article was signed, Stalin. Gone were the other tried names, Oddball, Ossip, Pockmark Oska, and Koba. His latest pseudonym was a Russian word that meant steel. Stalin's article came out in the spring of 1913, but by then he was back in St. Petersburg, attending a fundraising ball for the International Woman's Day. Yet, that was too predictable an event for Stalin. He should have known better. Waiting for him, besides the ladies, was the Okranka. Yet his latest arrest was due to more than the thoroughness on the part of the authorities. Roman Malinowski, another Bolshevik Central Committee member, informed on him. The Okranka had compromised and protected Malinowski for some time. He was just paying them back. What's more, with Stalin gone, he, Malinowski, was the only remaining high-ranking Bolshevik still left in Russia and still free. Some of the Bolsheviks' now dilapidated status had been their own fault. Lenin's and Stalin's, that is. For they believed that only professional revolutionaries should be party members. Hence, once the authorities got rid of them, the party, the committee, was gutted. There could be no forward movement now. Later, another Bolshevik, Nikolai Bukharin, would write, Looking back at all the internal dissension, I wondered if we ourselves were the provocateurs. Yet, as well as the Okranka was doing, the country was no more secure, politically. Yes, the most active agents of revolution were frozen out, but the people were still oppressed, unhappy, and angry with their supposed beloved Tsar. During the 1913 Romanov Jubilee, few who mattered still believed it was safe for Nicholas and his family to make a public appearance. And now, with Stalin gone, events moved apace. Kaiser Wilhelm II, when he had come to power, discharged the 75-year-old Iron Chancellor, Bismarck. Later, he would choose not to renew Bismarck's German Relation Reassurance Treaty, which caused Russia to slide back to France. In 1913, the Kaiser then decided to start a naval race with Britain. To choose to build more ships for trade was wise, but to challenge the British in the North Sea was stirring up a hornet's nest. Then followed the two groups of alliances, the Triple Entente 
of France, Britain, and Russia versus the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary. This all but demanded an arms race, which itself does not have to lead to war. Merely the spending of vast amounts of revenue on items that do not benefit the common people. However, in 1913, Russia announced its great military program, slated to be done by 1917. That now became a date hanging over Berlin's head. To allow Germany's two populous neighbors and adversaries to industrialize their war machine was seen by the Kaiser and the German chief of staff, Helmut von Mocha the Younger, as a fatal mistake. To allow them to also to choose a date to attack was idiotic. The rest is what is called today game theory. If there is even a 1% chance that the other side will attack when it is propitious for them to do so, you must attack now, before their time comes. Soon came the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Habsburg throne in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914. What followed were threats, promises of support, and then harsher threats. The last piece of the deadly puzzle that was the Great War was the timetables the various militaries had worked out to perfection, all with the goal of besting the others and getting their soldiers into the field first. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So even though I'm a couple months late, it's time to do the drawing for the, uh, for the Truman set from Harry's. So this is uh, the starter set. What are you looking at? This is the starter <laughs> set um, that you can get if you go on their website, which I encourage you to do. It's a great product. Okay. So anyway, um, I have my not-too-serious daughters with me and my very serious wife with me uh, to balance that out. We're just going to draw a name. Those will be our four finalists, and then we'll draw two names after that, and then we'll draw a winner, okay? So, honey, would you like to go first and draw a name? Don't look in the bowl. Look away. Far away. She's Okay, it's fair. She's mixing it up. She's a very fair person. So the first person who is one of our finalists is Nicholas Coles. Okay, Kiki, would you like to pick a name? Don't look. No, no okay. now you got to scramble them up. Kiki's trying to cheat. I don't know which one of you have paid her off. No, you can't have two. All right. Robert Sheets. Okay, we got Robert Sheets. Uh, Sophie, you can either pick or you can let Teddy Bear pick. Whatever works for you. There we go. Okay, okay I, don't, I don't know. She was talking in tongues. David Foster. He is our third. And then it's my turn. Teddy picked it. Teddy picked it. She wants you all to know that Teddy picked it. The last one is... William Bremer. Okay, so we have these, so let's dump all those out, put these back in. Okay, no, 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 no. Mix them up again. Okay, so we need to get down to our two finalists. So, Sophie, do you want to pick one? Do you want to let Teddy yeah. pick one? Okay. No, I want to. Okay. She did it last time. Oh, she did it last time. Okay. All right, so one of the finalists is Nicholas Coles. All right, who wants to pick the other? Okay, Kiki, would you want to come over here and pick it? Yeah, Teddy can pick it. No. Okay. You don't look. Okay. All right. And the other finalist is David Foster. Okay. So we've got these down to Nicholas Coles and David Foster. Okay. So mix it all up really good. We're going to let mom pick the finalist. So honey, you oh God, you look away. So I'm going, okay. So Heather's going to mix up. Right there. She's got her eyes closed. She's so honest. 
Okay, so the winner of the Truman set from Harry's is is David Foster. Yay! Teddy, oh my God! Okay. Teddy picked him first. All right, so David Foster, just send me an email to wwii podcast at gmail.com and uh, then I'll get your address and ship it out to you. Okay, so thank you for everybody who participated. Congratulations to David, and I will see you all soon with the next episode of what's going on in North Africa. Teddy, Take care, everyone. Teddy says bye bye. Teddy says bye bye. Is there anything you'd like to say? Kiki's staring at me. No. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Hey,